Okay, well, welcome to Ed's podcast. Um, my guest today, I'm pleased to say, is James Deersley, who many of you will know from having seen him wandering around on various stages around the country at property get-togethers, estate agent get-togethers, normally wearing a very lively pair of trousers. And actually today he's got a rather boring pair of sky blue trousers on. I don't, <laughs> don't think they're jeans, which boring. is good, But, uh, yeah, just, just, just not what we're used to. Uh, and for those of you who don't know James well, he's a fairly imposing figure, a very large man um, in all sorts <laughs> of ways. Um, but he's more used, I think, to being on the other side of the microphone. So for a lot of you who don't know who he is, James, why don't you tell us a little bit about... Uh, your background, because unusually for people in the prop tech arena, you do actually have a property background. Oh, really? Yeah, and I'm a large member of blue trousers. I, I, that's the best description of me I've ever heard. Yep. Uh, but no, so, uh, well, I, yeah, I do. I have a, a solid property background. I, um, I left university, was meant to work for the John Lewis Partnership. Um, I had a beard, and apparently they really liked beards, which turned me completely off, so I actually resigned before I started. Um, and partly because I was actually being shown a house um, by KFH at the time, and I loved it. I loved every single thing about me. Can I just interrupt house? you and say that if you line up a hundred eighteen-year-olds and said who wants to who wants to be an estate agent, not one of them will put their hands up. No, watch them fail at what they want to do first, and then ask the same hundred, and you'll <laughs> probably I failed. Find that... I failed before I could even fail. Yeah, which but is the best I, bit about it. I have to say, I got booted out of university, so I'm in the same boat as you. <laughs> I um, understand how you feel. But, but yeah. I, I just fell in love with property, and uh, I remember very clearly. I was going to start with John Lewis on the Monday. I was viewing houses on the Friday. I promptly resigned. Uh, I remember clearly going on to milkround.com, which was this graduate site. And there was the advert for Foxton's. Which Sorry, was, how old were you then? I was, uh, I don't know, 20, 21 maybe? When I was 20, 21, there was a fuel strike in the States. And there, you're showing the internet, your age, Ed. The internet was, ten, was 20 years into the future, you see. You're a, <laughs> are you a millennial? No, I miss it. Just miss it. Yeah, I'm gutted. Okay. Just okay, so so you went straight into Foxton. I know, literally, yeah, so I was meant to, I had the interview on the Monday I was going to start at John Lewis, and um, I got the uh, the job on the Thursday, and I remember very clearly sitting there with Pete Rollings, who obviously you know very well, um, and getting the uh, getting the job, uh, and I started the following Monday. And I remember so clearly, I mean, it was it was a 22 grand package, the mini, uh, the whole thing, you know, and it hasn't changed to this day, so. It hasn't. And that, so was, a, really that was a long, long time ago, so but which, I which fell office, in love with property. Which office did you start? I started in Wandsworth, I was a negotiator in Wandsworth for a year. Um, I was then promoted straight to the manager of the Putney office, um, all in lettings at this time. And uh, I was there for another two and a half years. OK. I d- do you know, I didn't realise it was lettings. Mm, um, I was all lettings. Certainly at Douglas and Gordon, we always used to find that there was a... I mean, it's no coincidence, and I'm not saying anything by this at all, James, but it's no coincidence the majority of people who seem to be in lettings are female. <laughs> was that different at Foxons? Was it mostly I think it male? was, yeah. I think it was... Um... A, a very equal split, but I do believe that you are very different personality types. And I know Foxins at the time, and I'm sure it's still the, the case today, they very rigorously um, understood who you were as a character and they put you in place. So I think, you know, the lettings, it was a much faster turnover. No, I think a much that makes a lot deal. of sense. We used to do uh, the psychometric testing, yeah. and psychometric testing is is and shouldn't it shouldn't be the only way in which you employ people but what it did do for us is very clearly tell us whether the person we were interviewing wanted to rule the world be in lettings be in sales whatever it was so a lot of people would come to us and say oh, i really want to be in sales and we they go through the psychometric profiling and we'd say actually you're going to be much better in lettings they'd yeah. say no i want to it's try sales they do it six months and then move. so i didn't know that actually mm. that, that that explains a little bit that explains a little bit more about you that perhaps people didn't know mm. because 
I've always been amazed by your extraordinary ability to A, hold an audience when you're talking and B, know what you're talking about. Supposedly. Uh, well, I, I'm convinced there's a, that you, you, you do have to have a little bit of a, what's the right word, an analytical ability to be well, able actually, to hold Well, actually, funny you say that. So that's part of the reason why I left. So I, I loved Foxton's, uh, I mean, I still do. I, 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 I learned how to sell at Foxton's. I learned how to become me. And I learned that, you know, sales is really a transfer of enthusiasm and, and that really uh, struck with me. But I, one of the reasons I, I'd left was um, very much about, I was looking at performance of my staff very different to the sort of throw enough viewings at a wall and some will stick. You know, I wanted to break down the analytics. I wanted to break down the data of my best performing negs and say, well, hang on a minute, they're only viewing you know, half of that person, but actually they get the same number of sales. So what are they doing differently to the rest? And we learn from that. So that was one of the one of the reasons I left. But I went from Foxton just to carry on that story of the property journey I went on to then I then spent seven years in sales and marketing for an overseas property um, agency based in the UK, but selling all over Europe and that sort of stuff. So I've got that residential London background, and then I've got the, the sort of the construction um, development sales from overseas. And I assume that means you have an understanding of what happens in Europe. Yes, so, absolutely. So the way those, yeah, fundamentally. Because a lot of people really haven't got a clue. Um, no, well, I mean, and, and I find that's where it's really fascinating looking at the mentality and the insight we have of our market compared to... The, the property sales markets, the commission structures, the way that they do their deals in, you know, just Belgium and France compared to the Nordics, compared to Germany and the um, the bureaucracy that we have versus they have. And so, it makes massive But if you were to be able, if, if you were to turn around and say, this is just a very off-the-cuff question, but if you were to turn around knowing Europe, is there any system that you would like to see us adopt that's currently in use in Europe? Um, well, part of it's fees, I'm afraid to say. You know, part of the reason why, what I find fascinating now about looking at technology and how that's impacting our sector and some of the, the models that I see we're trying to create here in the UK and I'm looking at it going, it's just not going to work. Our fee structure in the sales market is just never going to be able to allow you to scale that business. But actually, if you look at scaling it in Australia, Belgium, um, Are you Germany, talking Holland, about the low fee online? The low fee structure, yeah, absolutely. The, well, no, not necessarily, new- not necessarily because that is a completely different story about the online offline or the onbrids as i call them and, yeah. the, and the high street yeah. agencies because it's about it's as much about the fees that they charge as the efficiencies in the back okay. end system so that you're have, talking about the high street agents which started off with a low fee even back in my day and they're now getting even lower that's what you're talking about yeah right? i mean but if you just look at that as a as one case in point you know the purple bricks the e-moves and all this sort of stuff they are always going to struggle here because they are only undercutting a market by so much so their backroom stuff has to be so tight to try to make a model work. And it hasn't proved to be so yet. You know, Purple Bricks only in the last couple of days are struggling even more. They're buying back even more debt to, to scale the business. And it's just not going to work. But part of but the reason I... to carry that on, though, Ed, if you're looking at the European marketplaces where the commission structures are so much higher, you know, 3% by the buyer, 3% by the seller, it means that the margins they can work to are far larger by charging more of a flat fee. So not the the grand or whatever it might be now, but a lot higher. So yeah. it's far more justified. Okay, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you finished that off because actually that's, that, that's very important to understand. I think where the, the other bit that I'm coming from is, of course, that if you imagine that all the mortgage financing, if you could wave a magic wand about and all the, the financing and the legal conveyancing stuff could be done at the push of a button. Yep. Do you think that would alter the way in which the estate agency model would work? So just so let, let's explore that out. So what are you saying? How if technology can just make a major impact on all the um, 
Well, I, well, I think the problem is at the moment that if you look at the at the process, people go and they say, "I want to buy that property," and then sixteen weeks later, yep. four months, they're lucky if they've exchanged contracts because the whole process is so slow. The mortgage process, yep. the appraisal process, the 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 conveyancing process, the local searches, everything else is so inefficient. If all of that was able to be done by pushing a button, so it was all held somewhere. Uh, you know, heaven knows how, blockchain, whatever it is. So it's, it's all held oh, somewhere so people understand how out. it's held. No, no, I don't want to talk about that because it's, because it's boring and everybody else talks about it. But if it's held safely somewhere so that yeah. that information can just be pulled out by whoever is running the process, surely one of the things that an estate agent is vital for is holding the buyer's hand and indeed the seller's hand throughout that entire process and saying, don't worry, it'll happen. Stick with it. Keep keep going, keep going. Because most people would lose the will to live after 16 weeks and a lot do. I mean, a third, even 40%, some say, of deals fall through because there's some sort of a problem. Yep. So what I'm saying is that at some point in the future, is there going to be a crossover point where some of this new breed of on-brid or online, whatever you want to call them, can perhaps be much more dominant because of the fact that the high street agent doesn't need to hold the hand of the buyer or the seller. Okay, so let me give you personal experience rather than opinion on this because I think it's a it's a very um, uh, it's almost a, a sort of a it's a bit like Brexit negotiations. It's all built on fear, and I think you've got to look at the practicalities of it all. So when I went to sell my my flat um, six eight months ago. I said, right, I do this for a living. You know, this is what I talk about all the time is tech, tech, tech. So I need to finally run and put my money where my mouth is and try these um, online hybrid type um, offerings and and see what it actually is. Because I'm a big believer that unless you genuinely try something, you can't really experience whether it's a good or a bad um, option. So I got in loads of um, online guys. I got in loads of high street guys. And and did the whole viewing valuation process and, and everybody valued, everybody valued exactly the same price for this flat. So I was like, well, so I've got an option here of 2% plus or a flat fee, you know, 749, whatever it was at the time. So for me to start with, I was saying that's the first problem. Everyone's valuing at the same time. And one of them is coming in probably, you know, five, six grand cheaper than the other. So I'm a normal consumer here. I'm not somebody with a, a tech head on and I'm going, well, you know, it's hitting my wallet. I'm going to go with the, with the online guys. Point one. Point two. Very quickly, it was impressed upon me how good the systems were on the online guys. You know, they, everything could be automated was just automated brilliantly. The whole system was fluid. I knew exactly where I was. I knew everything that was going on. It was all automated. I had everything at my fingertips and I could see what was going on. So instant feedback was brilliant. Then what happened is as soon as that, as we all know in the industry, you've got that sort of two-week period where everything's going. You're you know, probably going to get some viewings in if it's priced properly and all this sort of stuff. And it was great. It's getting notifications of viewings coming in. I knew everything that was happening. The key systems were obviously good, as you know, because I, I brought you in on this and said, actually, the beauty of me not having to be there to give the keys away and actually having them there was fantastic. It worked seamlessly. So for me... That initial automation period was absolutely brilliant from a solution perspective. But that's when I felt that it actually it fell short because I, I actually said at the end of the entire journey, and just to cut that long story short, we ended up not selling because the market tanked. But I started to use the high street agents as well. And what I found was that the... The newer agencies, the modern business models, had the solutions and the systems in place which made it seamless and brilliant. 
the high street guys, the traditional agents, lacked the systems. But what they had is, I call it, they had the soul. They knew instantly that my property was on the market and the good agents rang me and said, I see your properties on the market, James. I know you've spoken to us before. Look, I've got three people who could go around that person or around that flat immediately. They were instantly able, the moment I said, okay, fine, you guys have a go, right? The keys are there. I don't need to let you in. The keys are here. Here's the code. You let yourself in. Go. What they brought to it was a knowledge of that market. They brought the knowledge of those few streets where my property was. And they knew instantly that six months ago, Mrs. Jones had visited that and she got gazumped and she couldn't buy the house she wanted to. So she was able to go around and see it. So I was very instantly impressed by the ability to know the market and know the people who were interested instantly. And I said that from the start. There is no one ideal solution there because... The, the new guys lack the soul of the traditional agency. They lack that magic inbox. You know, we all used to have the, the, um, the hot box, as I used to call it in, in Foxtons, where they knew their applicants brilliantly. But isn't and, that and the difference, it. James? I think, I, I think it was, it's worth saying, guys, that if you want to go, if you, if you Google James Deersley, you'll find his, um, his blog. And actually, it was a fascinating experience. I think it started off in a very exciting way with him saying, do you know what? I'm going to tell my readers what I'm doing and yeah. uh, I, I, this is what I'm doing. And it was fascinating. Um, but I think you exactly there articulated at the end of that description of it uh, what the difference is. And the difference, what I think people will pay for is access. And what I always used to say when I was going out to win business when I was running an office for Douglas and Gordon was what you're paying for is access to my hotbox, my, de- yeah. my, my database of buyers. And I think that at the moment perhaps is a little bit of the difference between some of the online, some of the on-bread, high, on, you know, online, whatever you want to call them. For a lot of them, they're just glorified listers, and some of them genuinely are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, some of the bigger ones that we've talked about are now beginning to yield a database of buyers that their local property experts, or however yep. you want to describe them, can actually leverage. But for the for the majority of people, the difference with pe- paying a fee for an agent is this ability to to have access to those buyers straight away. So, I, I just. I mean, you didn't answer the question about whether you think if all the technology enables people to do the deal straight away, that might yeah, change so the way. If, that I, if I may answer that yeah. for a second, I don't think. No, I, uh, let me rephrase. I think every agent should sit up and realise that the job they currently have is not going to be the job that they have in five years time. I think they've got to be realistic with themselves. However hard that is and however much people might be saying that's rubbish. I'm sorry, it's not. There are systems in place which, as you've just said and quite rightly pointed out, you know, these bigger agencies are now building databases of people. All they've got to do is build people to then farm that database to make it better, to give that soul to understand who's bought what, where, when. But that's, that's... And the second iteration of property sales, et cetera, et cetera, which is what all these other agents have and that trust and respectability. But my point remains, that trusted estate agent, and I'll always remember Peter Knight stood up at one of his many events and just said... We have my doctor. We have he's my lawyer. Why don't we have she's my estate agent? And I think that's what you have. You have a relationship with somebody that you trust and they've taken you through one of the hardest transactions you will ever go through and you trust them if they've been good and you will go back to them. Mm. And I think that is what there will be fewer estate agents who do the viewings. There will be fewer people that do the deal tracking, um, but they will be so trusted, they will almost act as quasi-brokers rather than huge estate agency type models. 
So almost more, coming back to that European model again, and almost the American model and the Australian model where they're broker-specific and the trust is in the beholder of that person. Well, I think, that's, I think that's really insightful and I think that's... I agree with you. I think technology will help speed the process up, whatever, but that's still quite some time where we know that. But I do think what a lot of the technology... And you know a lot more about some of these prop tech companies than I do. I mean, as you well and know. And a lot of them aren't. I mean, you know, let's be brutally honest. I mean, there are about 7,000 prop tech businesses around the world as we're tracking at the minute. There's not going to be that many in five years' time. No, no, sure, because I think a lot of them started life without a without a prop without thinking about whether the estate agents would actually need it or not. They started off; they had yeah, a great idea, but they didn't get an agent involved at the start. But I think what a lot of this technology is enabling is that if you're working for a little two office company in in the Cotswolds or something, and you can't really see a way that you're you've been there for say three or four years. You're in your mid twenties. You're really enjoying it, but the person who owns the business isn't going to die anytime soon there's no succession planning in place uh you know there's no there's no way for you to progress for a lot of those people they now have the ability to go and set up on their own yeah and i think if you've been working in an area for say five years you know the local area you've got kids at the local school you can go along to the local school make friends with all the other parents that is the American and the Australian model, where they inveigle themselves into the community. Yeah. Um, and you become their estate agent. You Exactly. You become their estate agent. And I think you can, you can, people will possibly then trust you to, to act for them on the buy side, possibly, as well. I mean, that's the big difference, obviously, with a lot of, the other com- a lot of these other countries, is that they have agents that represent, that are paid to act for the buyer. In the UK, it's somehow seen as a, as a top-end perk that people will, will go to Property Vision or something and have pay 2% to a buying agent. Mm. When actually, the, and I agree, the problem with the fees at 1% or something is you don't have the... There's the, no margin. You, there's no margin for it. Um, so I think it is a fascinating area. I mean, uh, you know, you and I have connected a bit more because I'd left Douglas and Gordon a couple of years ago to set up a... a whether, you have, whether you describe it as prop tech business or not, I don't know. But I... Well, I do, because you, you're working with a physical asset. I think it's an important yes, point. Yes, it's a physical asset. But I think, you know, the, the, the business I'm running, Viewber, is very much a sort of three-phase thing. It's a, There's a tech platform, there's the people who work the tech platform, and then there's the people out on the ground. So yep. you have sort of three elements to it. Um, but I've met quite a lot of people in the, in the sector, um, and I find it absolutely bewildering. And I think I'm right in saying that you and your business partner have now uh, started up a company which actually looks to advise people. Tell us a little bit about that, because you've, you've, you've now leveraged all your knowledge you've gained over the last couple of years to, to, to start up a business. Yeah. So, I mean, for five years, obviously, I've, I've had a very sort of a non-commercial attitude to the whole prop tech thing. It started out that my passion purely about the property world and the technology world. And I realised then that uh, over time there was a serious lack of knowledge in the UK and then more globally. I mean, the amount of conferences I'm very fortunate to speak to, speak at, sorry. And the same common theme is now appearing, which is they realise prop tech is a thing and that it's not going to change. And that as the industry is going through this digital transformation piece, which we always talk about, um, they're a loss. They don't know where to turn. They don't know where to get their data. They don't know where to get their research from. There's no single source of truth about all of this information. So I am a residential real estate agent in London. What solutions should I be using? I have no idea. So we looked at this and said, well, hang on a second, there really needs to be some way of the industry understanding which prop tech solutions to be using. And let's just be perfectly frank for a minute here. A residential building in London is going to suffer the same problems as a residential building in New York, in Sydney, in rural, I don't know, 
America, they're still going to have those same problems. And so the solutions to those problems aren't necessarily local to that property. They could be international. You know, there are some amazing businesses in South America. There are some amazing businesses in Indonesia, which are all cropping up. And, this, you know, their client base is global. So we often talk about PropTech is offering global solutions to a local problem. But there was nowhere, nowhere where the industry could understand all the different businesses, understand all the different research which is out there, understand all the data about all these businesses. And so we just said, well, look, let's just come up with a centralized um, platform where anybody can search for anything to do with the property market. So we, we started out and, you know, there were so like MIT over in America, Columbia, another one, Cape Town. Um, all of these universities were ha- and actually investment houses all had their little lists of prop tech businesses. And they were sort of saying, oh, we've got 2,000 businesses. And we, we brought all of these public lists all together. And we've now found out there's over 7,000 um, uh, prop tech businesses around the world. But again, nobody had actually then had some form of unified way or uniform way, sorry, of cataloging each of those businesses. So we set about with a team of uh, seven researchers to um, really define which sectors they were in, which um, which area of the property life cycle they were in, were they dealing with the build cycle? That must be a constantly moving. Stuff. Oh, it's, it's constantly evolving. <laughs> it's a nightmare, Ed. I mean, it completely um, consumes you to, to do this. But, you know, which technologies are they using? Which cities are they in? Which countries are they in? And then an overlaid on top of that, we then just had a relationship with Crunchbase, who are the guys who um, analyse all of the investment data, to overlay financial information on top of all of that. So for now, you're looking at, if you're an investor, for example, and you uh, normally go to places like CB Insights or Venture Scanner, and they'll tell you, well, investment in PropTech was $12 billion last year. It's rubbish. It's built on an analysis of about 1,600 companies, whereas actually there's 7,000. So, you know, we're, we will be the first platform that, A, you can catalogue any single bit of research that you could ever conceivably want to understand about the property market or prop tech market, but also you can then overlay investment level decisions on that. So you say you will be. Is this in... Are you providing access to this yet, or is that something that's to come? No, we're doing beta access. We'll go to the um, the, the beta group or the, the MVP, if we're going to talk in startup language, so the minimum viable product who's going out in November. Um, and then it'll most likely be to be launched to the industry, as in the property industry, in early January. Okay. So we've got a period where we want testing, and then we're going to have a period where the prop tech businesses have to validate the data that we've collected on them to make sure it's actually as accurate as it co- can possibly be, um, and then launching in, uh, in January. And will that be a consultant's model? Will it be a subscription no, it's model? A complete, it's a complete platform model. So it'll be everybody will be able to search for it completely and utterly free. Uh, there will be premium versions on that. So, for example... Uh, filtering. So if you want to get into some real advanced filtering, I, I only want to see businesses which are based in London. Um, you know, that might be a, a premium filter, but it's a basic SaaS model. So not so, difficult. So um, SaaS, even I understand that, software as a service. Yeah. So what you're... Okay. So one of the things that I am... Um, I have come to find out it's in, in in starting my own business, we spent the last two years proving the proof of concept. You know, we've done tens of thousands of these things. So people can no longer say it doesn't work. The issue I have found is that for a lot of the high street estate agents who still make up the vast majority, 90, 92%, whatever it is, of, mm. the, of the UK market, which are the kind of people you're aiming at, of those, still about 80% are one or two office operations owned by people, for want of a better expression, 75% like me. 75% of all yeah. residential estate agents I, are one or two man offices. I, I mean, it's, it's just incredible. Mm. And most of them are the, are the type of people that I described earlier in Gloucestershire in a little village. They're probably a middle-aged bloke owning them. They've got no desire to – they've got no one who's going to buy their business because no one's going to buy a sales agency. They might get a little bit of money for their lettings book if they're yeah. lucky. But they've got no 
knowledge or intention to to adopt or embrace prop tech because for them it could bust the business you know they could make well, a wrong why, why could it be, well because why could it they the business? they you know if they've been operating a system that works they might want to engage with some sort of crm or marketing database or whatever okay, it is. So is, that, well, is that prop tech well i mean i'm i'm that's what I want to talk to you about because I think a lot of these people are terrified with embracing anything because they think if it's going to change the model, it might. And, and a lot of them are working off very thin margins. Yeah, totally. You know, right move putting their costs up as they have done recently from a thousand yeah. to sixteen hundred, whatever it is, is a big deal for these guys. You know, they're operating on thin margins, but they have a very happy to run business. And this is the vast majority of agents. Yeah. And what I have found with my own particular business is that rather than tell people how marvelous it is marvellous it is and that it works that bit's now proved so what we now need to do is turn around to the agency world and say well how how can this work for you you tell us what you want from it so when you describe your business as being a platform that's going to be available for people to go and filter yeah when 75 percent of that industry is is probably someone who doesn't even need doesn't even know what filters to apply how do you help people like that who make up the vast majority of the industry? I mean, talking about the Connells and the countrywide, yep. maybe leave countrywide to one side for a moment, but whilst they repair themselves. Well, but, have no digital but, certainly, but certainly LSL, you know, Spicer Heart, Leaders and Roman, some of these big companies are pretty good at adopting new methodologies because they have an economy of scale and they can go and test it. But how? what would you say to that 75, 80% of people that are one-man bands? Well, I think... Firstly, it's the understanding of what prop tech is. And I would most certainly put in CRM providers. Most certainly put in marketing automation services. Because 55% of agents don't have any form of CRM. They still stick it on an Excel spreadsheet, for example. That's one of the biggest battles of most prop tech businesses. They say, our biggest uh, competitor is Excel still. And that's what it is. So I think... One of the things I would most definitely say is, first of all, foremost, have an understanding of what prop tech is. And that's what really the platform is there to do, which is to help them understand what sort of solutions there are out there. They may not even know. And this is part of the problem. And they may say, God, it's going to take me forever to research every single business there is to know. The second thing is, and and I've seen this a lot, especially in sort of smaller businesses who are perhaps one man bands and they have a thought that they want to sell it on in the future. I often have a Uh, and almost a call for them to say, look at what your business is now and look at when you're looking to sell that business and look at what you're actually selling. If you are selling a traditional estate agent, I would argue that the valuation that that estate agent is going to have is not going to be as significant as perhaps a more technology-enabled estate agent, which has all of the, um, the trappings of systems that actually can work and will fit in well with perhaps larger companies who will be looking at your agency and saying, actually, I'm going to buy them. Because it means that the transition for them to buy a a smaller agency and bring it into their systems are far quicker than working off of legacy-based bad systems which may work for that individual but they don't work no, that's a very for good whomever point. they're that's going to sell into. Provided so, there's a uniform system they can all use, obviously. Exactly. And But this is, again, it comes down to the research and the education side. So I would just put a call out to all of those agents, you know, the 75% of our market and say, what's your exit? What are you trying to do? Because the one thing I would absolutely be calling on every single one of you to do is to say, Work out your exit strategy and plan back from that. If you want to be merged in with a larger entity, understand the systems that they are using. Start to align your business model to their solutions because then you suddenly appear far more attractive than anybody else. So it's not actually 
about the way that you necessarily want to work today, but actually where you need to be working in two, three, five years' time. So it's not just a question of EBITDA. No, I mean, surely if if you're a a tech-enabled business... The perception, and I think another reason that some of these this 75% long tail of the industry panics about, is that they look at some of their competitors who are who are bigger and, and able to adopt some sort of tech, and feel that they're taking advantage of it. Is is do you do you think that by engaging with the correct prop, prop tech, there is a way to increase one's EBITDA? I think, well, maybe not on necessarily EBITDA as a crude measure. But I think in terms of perception and ease of integration, which I think is as as important almost for these guys who are circling for you know other businesses to buy, that is definitely going to be a mark. It's like when I don't know when you make a, a home improvement onto your onto your property, and you say actually I want to have a bathroom extension, um, and actually it's not going to add a massive amount to my property price when I sell it. But I know that it will differentiate me from the other three houses on the road who actually will probably be about the same price, but mine will sell quicker. So I think that is that's the key point. But just to take your point further, you know, as a as a platform, we are trying to do this isn't about the UK market. This is about a global plan. So, you know, we are not really focused on the 75% of people in the UK as a core market. You know, we are looking at the retail market, the construction market, the commercial market, the retail market across multiple countries across all of the world. That's quite a big target, James, isn't it? It's massive. (laughs) But then that's what I mean. But we've built the system in the sense of, you know, so Eddie, my business partner and I, you know, we know we are not. Um, egotistical enough to know that we can work this. So we've got regional partners across nine different um, countries and regions around the world where they've all invested into the platform. So we've got partners in China, in Australia, in South America, in America, where actually we are not the ones facilitating the growth. It all comes from our regional partners feeding in. Yeah, no, so it I'm, really isn't about... I'm fascinated um, by it. Market. I mean, I'm a part of a WhatsApp group, which you're, you're, you, you are as well, and yeah. I see a lot of the input to that, and it's just extraordinary, the the... Uh, sheer geographical spread of where this stuff comes from. I find it absolutely amazing. My favourite, I saw my first Zimbabwean prop tech business yesterday. And uh, one of the ones I I enjoyed analysing the other day was a Nepalese prop tech business, which is just bonkers, but it shows the scale of this technology adoption. Well, it is one of those things. I mean, again, I I can only use my own experience, but our business, you know, we've been approached by people from all over the world wanting to adopt what we do. And we can easily place ourselves in other countries just from where we are now. So which country next? Well, I mean, you know, probably Ireland is the easiest <laughs> one for us, but that's very small. Uh, but Which then, bit but, of the border? But then the, the US border. and Australia. So, you know, it's, it's, it's extraordinary, really, how, how this is breaking down borders and how easy it is. Not easy, that's a completely wrong word. How possible it is for this sort of tech to be, to be used. Um, look, I, you know, I think people have an attention span with these sort of things, and I don't <laughs> want to go wa- sort of waffling on forever. I mean... I would. There's loads and loads I could talk about, and I really mm. hope we can sit across the table and do this again at some point soon. What's the name of your new upcoming business so people can Google it and get interested? Uh, yeah, so it's uh, Unisu. So U N I double S U. Okay. Which stands, by the way, so Uni is in to unify all of the different silos and communities of prop tech businesses and companies and everything around the world. The double S stands for the single source, so it'll be a single source of truth about everything. And the U on the end is all about uniformity, because unless we've got some form of uniformity about prop tech data around the world, we can't, we can't really compare like for like. Okay, Unison. well, I think that's great. I think um, 
for someone who's got a good background and interest in it, as I say, um, for most people out there, if they want to go and Google what James Deersley does, you'll see that in terms of aggregating lots of prop tech information, there's no one better really for putting it in the same place. I know you do a column on the state, uh, state agent today, I think, for, yep. for that, don't you, and one or two other yep. things. So, um, so it's, it's been good to talk to you. And the last thing I'd ask you, I suppose, which I try and ask all the people I do with, if, you were, if I was to ask you on a scale of 1 to 10, how lucky do you think you are? Oh, Christ, 10 every day. Yeah, well, I love what I do, and I can't, you know, I think that's a... We should all do that. I mean, Christ, if we don't love what we do, why are we doing it? Well, I wish I'd been able to do what I do now 10 years ago, but the tech didn't exist, exist no. to do it. So it's a fascinating time. Listen, James, thanks very much for coming in. Thanks.